I'm glad you guys are here this morning, and uh, as we kind of pick up where we left off last week, last Sunday, we, uh, we kind of took a break in our regularly scheduled programming. I, I had first originally expected to go back into Luke, and then as I was thinking about, um, after my break this summer, I was thinking about just as we, as we come to this point in our life, like we, we come around the calendar and there's a there's seasons of life, and we are in a season where life is settling back down, and, and we're kind of kind of coming out of the summer, and and so there's there's uh, it's a good time for us to recalibrate, to really kind of stop and think about the reasons that we do what we do, personally and as a church. So last week we we began just a two week little mini series to talk about worship and mission. <clears throat> Excuse me. Our our focus last week was on worship, and I, and I need to just kind of cover that because there's people here today that weren't here that last week. And these three points that we built out last week are important for us as we go forward today. And so as we talked about worship, I, I didn't try to define it for you. I didn't try to give you some academic understanding of worship. I just wanted us to consider the essence or the nature of worship and, and what God thinks of when He thinks of worship. I think it's a reality in our culture and in the lives that we live in our day and age that that when you bring up worship to people today, that most often the thing that comes to mind is the very thing we just finished doing, like the songs that we sing. And, and in fact, we focus so heavily on the music of worship that we have a whole genre of, of music that is considered worship music. And, and, and the thing is, it's not that. It's not that it's not worshipful, and it's not that it's not worship, but it's such a small piece of worship. In fact, as we studied last week from John chapter 4, verses 19 through 24, where Jesus teaches a Samaritan woman about worship, I think it's telling that he didn't even mention music. It's not that we can't worship through music. It's just not, it's not the essence or the nature of worship. And, and, and so that's what I sought to bring out for you, is that, that there's much more to worship. When God thinks of worship, when God considers worship, it's much more than just simply us gathering and singing. And so I try to answer the question, what is worship? And then I asked you the question, and I can't answer this for you, but is my worship true? What is true worship, and is my worship true? And I gave you three answers to the question, what is true worship? And they are, true worship is the goal of God's redemptive mission in the world. We saw that in the text, God is seeking true worshipers. He's not, he is about Seeking his worship. He is about his own glory. He is after true worshipers that truly worship. That is his mission. Certainly, he is at work through the gospel to save people, to promise an inheritance to you that one day when you die, you will live for eternity in heaven. But the point of that is not simply to be good to you, but that you would glorify him. He saves people for the purpose of worship, that we might turn and worship him. That's his mission in the world. That is the goal of his redemptive mission. From that, we also saw, from the text, we also saw that true worship is focused on the true God. Everybody worships something. We all worship something or someone. There's things that we devote ourselves to, that we adore, that we have awe of, that that we build our lives around, and they aren't necessarily God. But if we are going to truly worship, and you can go back and listen to the the recording or to the to the the podcast, you can go back and, and listen to it, but or, or read the text, John four, nineteen through twenty-four. Jesus teaches us that if we are going to truly worship, we must truly worship the true object of worship. Now, I know that's a lot of truths and worships and, and, and hopefully you get the point. 
There is only one that is worthy to be worshipped. He is the God who created, who's shown himself to be Trinitarian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's come as our Savior and sent his Spirit as our uh, power to live this new life that he's given us. True worship must be focused on the true God. And then third, we looked at and saw in the text that true worship is expressed in spirit and truth. It's not a in spirit, like I'm going to experience this great worship. Uh, it, it's spirit and truth. It's both and. And it can't just be truth with no spirit, like we can't be frozen chosen. You know, there, there should be an expression and an experience of worship. But we can't have all of this experience that's just built and, and gives us these emotional rushes and it's built out of uh, something other than truth. It's a both and experience. So, so the desire of worship meets the truth of God, the truth of who God is, the truth of who we are apart from him, and the truth of how God has redeemed us and empowered us and enabled us for worship. So when God thinks of worship and when God defines worship, when God speaks of worship, it's much more than just the music we sing. It is his mission. It is his purpose in this world. Worship is all about him. It starts with him. It's empowered by him. It's directed at him. He is the only one truly worthy of being worshipped. But we are blessed. We are blessed with the opportunity to express our worship to him. We are unique in the world as believers, as followers, as Christians, as a people who have been redeemed. We are blessed and we are unique in the world that we will not simply glorify God. but We will worship him. We will choose to see him exalted, choose to devote ourselves to him, choose to, to give our lives for him. This week, as we, as we come from that, we're going to focus on mission. And I, I need you to see all that, that, that we talked about last week, that worship really is the mission of God. I need you to see that because as we talk today, we, we really can't get past worship as we talk about mission. They're two intrinsically woven together. Well, today, the, the title of the sermon is Worship is Missional. It's not just about sitting in a room and singing some songs. It's active. It moves us. It's, it changes us. It, it gives us purpose. It's the very thing for which we have been created. Worship is missional. We're going to be working from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn there. We're actually going to flip around a little bit. If you have version on your, on your smart device, the, the live event is out there, and the notes are there, and quotes that I'll share with you are there, scripture verses are there. And so you can, you can follow along there if you'd like. I'd encourage it. It's, a, it's an easy, condensed place to, to follow along. But as we, as we seek to talk about mission today, I want to follow a theme that started last week. We're going to answer two questions. We're going to answer two questions. How do we join God in his mission? So we're not just going to set up the idea or essence of mission. We're not going to deal with it as, as, as theoretically or, or maybe from a, the, the point or perspective that we did last week with worship. We're, I want to be very practical. Like, how do we do mission? Now, how do we join God in his mission of Worship. If God's purpose in the world, if his mission, if the goal of his redemptive mission is worship, how do we join him in that? How do we do mission? And then as we close, just so that I don't give you a bunch of ideas that you can't do anything with, I want to make sure that we bring it home again. Not for the people sitting around us, but for you and for me. And I just want to close on a question. Whose mission am I on? Whose mission am I on? 
serving. And just as last week, as I, as I mentioned, I think this is probably in light of the sermon, in light of the text, I think this probably is the most important question we could ask ourselves at the end of the day today. There's no more pressing question. The truth is, if it's not for God's mercy, we couldn't do this mission of worship. We couldn't be involved in this mission of worship. We could not even turn to God. But here's the thing. There's a reality that every last one of us, even those that are believers in Jesus Christ sitting in this room, are not solely committed to the mission and worship of God. I I don't think I'm alone here. I think the reality is, is that we have our own goals, we have our own purposes, we set our own agendas, and we need to be reminded, we need to be recalibrated, we need to to turn back again, we need to get our, our compass pointing back in the right direction again, because we all have a mission, but oftentimes they don't look like God's mission. Bob Coughlin wrote a book, and he is, it's been formative for me. Um, anything you can read by Bob Coughlin, I would commend to you. It's, it's, a, it's called uh, True Worshippers, another book that has been formative for me and, and very uh, outside the Bible. has been John Piper's Let the Nations Be Glad as it, as it works between the ideas of worship and mission. But Bob Coughlin kind of shares his own experience in this book that he's written. He shares his own experience in realizing that even in the midst of noble things, socially acceptable, even commendable things that he found himself doing something other than serving God's mission or walking in God's mission because he found himself worshiping something other than God. I just want to, as we begin today, I want to kind of set the framework of what we're going to talk about. And and, and as we move into the scripture, I want to set the framework with with this and just read it to you. It's from his book. He, He says, I started praying feverishly. God What is happening? What is this? Where are you? Silence. You been there? Never experienced that? That night, I began a journey of almost three years battling depression, anxiety, disconnectedness, tension, and a profound, incessant hopelessness. A physical physical exam showed I was fine, and I had no external crises. After much prayer, counsel, Bible study, and reflection, I discovered the root of my problem, worship. It wasn't a lack of worship that caused my breakdown. It It was worship in the wrong direction. Worship in the wrong direction is called idolatry. It's looking to anything other than God for our ultimate satisfaction, comfort, security, or joy. When I worship an idol, I'm saying, fulfill me, console me, protect me, rule me. You are worthy of my strength, time, energy, and affections. Only you can make me completely happy. We don't physically bow down to our idols, but that's what we're doing in our hearts. I was living proof that we never begin worship, we aim it. We're always worshiping something, someone. I had been aiming at the idols of control and reputation for years, and God finally allowed me to experience the effects. Instead of trusting in God's sovereignty, I sought refuge in my own ability to control things. Instead of magnifying God's mercy, I was promoting my own efforts to earn his favor. Instead of exalting God, I was exalting me. 
I feel like he's writing my biography. And when I couldn't get the glory I craved, my world came crashing down. You know what that feels like? You know that experience. Over time, God helped me to see that when I sought glory for myself, praise for my accomplishments, and credit for my growth, I wasn't exalting a Savior. I was searching for an audience. Thankfully, thankfully, Jesus died for that as well. Through a lengthy and painful process, God redirected my worship. I came to see in a fresh and profound way that we're redeemed to exalt God and God alone. Now, I know in your mind, I thought we were talking about mission. How are we, his his problems worship, how does that relate? Bob Coughlin learned something. God saved him. He redeemed him to worship God. It was God's plan. It was God's mission. It was God's intention that Bob Coughlin, that Seth Shelton, that you would be saved, that your life would take on the missional aspect, the missional effort, the missional focus of worship. You were saved not simply for your good. Yes, you were saved for your good, but not simply for your good. You were saved for the glory of God that you might give your life in worship. Bob Coughlin learned a lesson. That to get the mission of his life right, he needed to get the object of his worship right. And if the object of his worship is not right, the mission and the experience of his life and what he receives, what he knows and the peace and the comfort and joy that he longs for will never be there. You see, these two things, this worship and mission, are so woven together that they cannot be separated. There, there is no way that we can take one and, and talk about it by itself to understand it fully. Because God's mission in his glory is to enable you to see and respond in worship to his glory. In our deepest, and in the, in the depths of our soul. The issues that we need fixed are not better circumstances, are not more control in our life, not more security from our money, not more, not more money in the bank, not more people to pat us on the back, not more compliments to make us feel good. We need to give our lives to the mission of worship. How? How do we do that mission? How do we join God in his mission? I think Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul, he gives us the answer. He writes, this is obviously picking up in the middle of his letter, really at a turning point, at a pivotal moment in his letter to the church in Rome. And he writes, I write to you, I appeal to you, I'm sorry, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In the book of Romans, I pointed this out last week, in the book of Romans we we have probably the most thorough explanation of the gospel that's ever been written. 
The Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give us a, a window into the life, into the death, and into the resurrection of Christ, and into his teachings. We hear and see his power, and we, we, we hear and see the experience that he, that, 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 that he uh, had on this earth. We see the sacrifice that he made, and we see the victory of his resurrection. We, we see those things. But in Romans, Paul begins to help us apply it. He begins to help us give a framework to understand it and see its implications for life. The thing is, is it's not just about the gospel. I pointed this out last week, is that, that, that Romans really is, yes, it's about the gospel, but it's not only about the gospel. The book of Romans is God's work in the world to restore right worship. It begins with condemnation. In fact, you can see it in verse one, uh, or chapter 1, verse 21, when all things go wrong, when God's wrath is rightly applied to mankind, when, when condemnation enters the scene, it's a result of us worshiping the creation rather than the creator. When everything went wrong at this point of worship. God's wrath is justified. Our sins have been committed. And every sin that exists, every, every way that we create evil things to do, at one point he says that that's what we do. We create evil things to do. All of these things, they are rooted in one primary sin. We worship the creation rather than the creator. He goes on through chapter 3, verse 20, showing our condemnation, showing our sin. And it is universal. It's not one or two of us. It's every single Last, one of us who has ever lived, who ever will live, all have fallen short of the glory of God. The beauty is that's not the end of the story. You see, God has a plan. He has a mission to restore right worship, so he justifies people by faith. And so the next, the next section of Romans deals with the justification of people. And what that is is, is him saying he's looking at you, and you doing nothing you, you having no ability or uh, uh, capability to work yourself into this being not guilty, you are guilty. The, it's been demonstrated, and yet God says, wait a minute, you're righteous. He does that on the basis of Christ, and you can read all about that, how through Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, being given to us, being laid on us, and him taking our sin to the cross, we are counted righteous. We receive that by faith. He proves that in chapter 4. So 321 through 521 is him showing us our justification, showing us that we are righteous by Christ, by believing and trusting in Christ. This is the heartbeat of the gospel. But he doesn't stop there. He calls us and shows us sanctification, the process by which we live in this already not yet tension. Jesus says, by believing in him, you are righteous. You're sinless. Like all your sins are... Not counted against you, but, but who of us would claim to be sinless? I, I, I'm imagining that, that we've struggled with thoughts of selfishness and self-righteousness even as we've walked into the building today. The process of sanctification is us growing up into God's righteousness, us being made righteous like God has said. We are righteous. And he shows us that. He proves that to us all the way, chapter 6, verse 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 39. And he shows us not just the, the process of sanctification, but he shows us the blessing and the beauty of sanctification. There's now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. All things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. That means even the worst of circumstances of your life he uses to shape and mold. There's no wasted moment. We are now more than conquerors. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Neither death nor life, angels nor demons. 
nothing. It's the beauty of, and, and the power of the sanctifying process. And then he vindicates. See, Paul moves from sanctification, justification, sanctification, and he vindicates God through the, through the next couple of chapters as he demonstrates that God is righteous in condemnation and he is righteous in salvation and he is just in all he does. In his sovereign will to save, to extend mercy, and to withhold it. You read about that nine, chapter 9, verse 1 through 11 through 36. And, and if we stop there, if, if that's where it ended, then we could say, okay, well, this is just about the gospel. Like Paul just wanted us to see the gospel. I think he did. But I think he wanted us to see more than that. But because when he comes to the end of chapter 11, verse 36, as he closes out this, this gospel expression, the need for the gospel and condemnation and the provision of the gospel and justification, sanctification, and vindication, as he shows us those things in those three sections, he ends it in this way. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything exists for God. To him be the glory forever. The gospel exists for the glory of God. He gave us Christ. He justified us. He made us righteous. He sanctifies us for his glory. And it's not just passive glory. See, here's the thing. Here's, Here's what we realize in this whole teaching of Romans is that God will be glorified. God will be glorified. There is no one that will not ultimately, at some point, glorify God. He is glorified in the condemnation of those who reject and rebel. He takes no pleasure in it. It grieves him. It's not something we should celebrate or say lightly and without care or concern. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But in his righteousness and his holiness and his perfection and in his eternal nature, he is glorified as he gives people the condemnation that they have deserved by their sin. And he is glorified by taking our sin and placing it upon Christ and offering us hope of life forever. He will always be glorified. And the gospel ensures that. But... But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop at the eternal glory of God. He turns now and brings us to this place of application so that we're not left passively to glorify God, but instead calls us to turn and actively worship him, to actually make a choice in our new nature, by our new life as a result of what he's done in us. He calls us to turn and actively worship him, to bring God's glory back to him. See, now to live in response to what God has done. This is how we begin the mission. This is how we get into the work of the mission of God. This is how we join him. Living in response, as as Paul has called us to in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to, to give ourselves as living sacrifices for the glory of God. That we would join him in his purpose to be glorified. Here's the answer. This is the way I would, I would just describe this answer or give you an answer that you can take home and think about. Christians live the mission. We do mission by devoting themselves to a life of acceptable worship to God. 
We're so often thinking about mission, about going overseas and, and, and climbing on a plane and going to some deep, deep dark place where nobody knows Jesus. And, and that's mission. Yes, don't misunderstand. That's mission. Unless you're going there to make sure that people love you and like you and think well of you. But if you're going there to proclaim the gospel that they might see the glory of God and turn and worship him, that's mission. So we think of mission in terms of our mission field and the place that we are, and we think, oh, well, that means I've got to go to my neighbors and talk to my neighbors, and I've got to go, uh, I've got to teach my children about Jesus, and yes, those things are mission. But they are also worship. Because we are actively proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light so that others can see it and thereby worship him. God's mission for us is Simple, straightforward, God's mission for us is to worship him. In every circumstance, in every situation, in every relationship, in all that we do, in all that we are. I'm not trying to add another thing to your plate. I'm saying whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. This is an undergirding truth of all of life. All of life can be brought into this mission as we, as we no longer seek to exalt ourselves, as we no longer seek to please and find satisfaction for ourselves in the things of this world, as we no longer seek comfort and security in things other than God. We glorify God in all we do. But that's a struggle. Jesus left his followers. He left his followers and, and he told them, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I am with you to the end of the age. And, and automatically when we talk about mission, a lot of times for people, that's, that's the verse that comes to mind, or Acts 1, 8, you know, where, he, where he's talking about that you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses in, in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost. And, 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 and so, 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 so there's this, these thoughts, these verses that we automatically assign to, to mission. And they're about mission. Unless we make them about us. I mean, what if the disciples had gone and been more worried about how many followers they had? Like, I just got to make sure that I have more followers than John the Baptist. Like, I, wanna, I want John the Baptist to look like a small-town preacher. I want to be liked. I want to be affirmed. I don't want to be stabbed with a spear and boiled in oil. I, you know, anything to save myself. Who would they be worshiping? Who would they be leading people to worship? See, we can't do God's mission if we aren't willing to worship him in everything that we do. Another example, as we read the Bible, are we like those, the, the Jews of his day, the Israelites of his day? Jesus is talking to them, and, and he's like, you, you, you search out the scriptures that you might find eternal life. The first time I ever read that, I was like, man, that sounds pretty good. Like, yeah, let's find eternal life. The first time I told you guys, I think it was this service I told it last week, the story of my first attempt at reading the Bible on my own was to prove to people that I could still drink. Like, I still wanted to drink alcohol, and so, hey, I'm going to show you. It's not a sin. I'm going to prove it to you. Eternal life is probably a little more noble. It's probably a little better pursuit. 
But if you go back and read it, John chapter 5, it's right around verse 32. Jesus actually gets on to them for that. He searched the, the scriptures that you might have eternal life, but they were given to you that they would bear witness to me. You see, they were seeking their self-justification. They were seeking, so, so they were doing something noble. They were doing something worthwhile. Like Everybody's like, oh, read the Bible. Just reading the Bible is not automatically worship. Reading the Bible is that you might see your Lord, that you might encounter him, that you might see the truth of him, the truth of you, and the, and the reality of the gospel. And then it would move you to adore him and devote yourself to him. That's, that's worship. Maybe a little closer to home. This morning you got up, you put on your clothes, you came to church, and you came, and, and, it, and it's, it's not just in this room. I mean, it happens everywhere. It happens all over every church, every city, every, everywhere we're at in America. It's happening. People walk in the doors of church, and they measure their ability to worship based on what they experience in the room. The program's got to be just right. The music's got to be a certain style. The preacher better be good. He's got to make me laugh at least three times or else... I'm out. I'm trying, and you're not responding. There we go. And we measure it based on our experience. Coming and singing some songs when six out of seven days has been sent uh, or given to ourselves in the pursuit of our own agendas and our own mission, coming and giving him an hour and determining whether you're going to worship based on your experience in the room? Who are you really worshiping? See, I, I don't think we can be involved. I don't think we can participate. I don't think we can join God in his mission till he is the object of our worship. My hope is that since you've been here, in fact, I tell every visitor that comes there, I, I, it's my desire that this is a blessing to you. I hope that every one of our people are blessed because they have had an opportunity to see the beauty and majesty and glory and, and, and grandeur of a God who's lived forever and will live forever, who has power to do all things and who loves you enough that he cares enough that he'd make your worship possible. And that he'd fix the very deepest, darkest root of, dark, of, of sin in your life. That the rest of your sin might begin to make sense. Or the rest of your life might begin to make sense. You see, my hope is, is that when you've walked into this church, maybe we don't have the biggest, fanciest programs. Maybe, maybe I'm not the best comedian preacher or the, the most engaging storyteller. We have a responsibility to strive to do the things we do for the glory of God to the best of our ability for the glory of God. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it is our responsibility to meet him with what he provides us. My hope is, is that you hear the gospel and you are engaged in worship because you have a beautiful Savior who loves you and calls you into his presence and says, as you worship me, I will bless you. Until he's the object of our worship, we cannot join him in this mission. Before we can 
give ourselves to him. We must receive him. We must receive him. We must receive from him. Paul says it, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, therefore, in light of all I've taught you, in light of all that God has done, by the mercies of God, he has given us much. The Bible teaches us he's given us all we need for life and godliness. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And he calls us into worship in response, in in having received what God has done. John Stott says, God must speak to us before we have any liberty to speak to him. He must disclose disclose to us who he is before we can offer him what, what we are in acceptable worship. The worship of God is always a response to the word of God. Scripture wonderfully directs and enriches our worship. The thing is, is that, that having received his mercies, we are, in, we, we, we are capable, we are enabled, we are empowered. So if you don't feel like worship, if you don't feel like stepping in, if you think that there's a better way, then consider the mercies of God. It's by his power and his righteousness and his justice and His grace and His love for you, that you now experience His mercy. And it directs us. It draws our attention upward. He is worthy to be worshipped. And having received our lives from Him, having experienced His mercy, we are finally able to offer acceptable Worship. We are blessed with the opportunity to give our lives, to devote ourselves as a living sacrifice. Paul says in verse 1, present your bodies. This is not a, this is not a once in a while kind of thing. This is, not a, this is not a when I feel like it kind of thing. This is a my whole self, my whole being, my whole week, my whole circumstance, my whole vocation. And it's not a call for all of us to come and be pastors. Not not all of us need to be pastors. Many of us need to be people who live in the world and who worship God in our work, who worship God by, by going into our work and being the absolute best employee or the best boss we can be for the glory of God, who go and work hard in their in their studies, in their in their classes so that so that God is glorified. So that when people find out we're a Christian, they don't think, oh man, that guy doesn't even care. So that as we live in our neighborhoods, we strive to be the best neighbor we can be. That loves our neighbors as ourselves, that God might be glorified. This is a whole life experience to love the Lord your Love the Lord your God with your whole self, your mind, your body, and your soul. Everything. And we join God in worship as we experience that worship first internally and externally. Paul shows us this. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Don't live like them. Don't act like them. Don't don't live up to their expectations. Don't set them as your standard. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewal of your mind, be made new by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of 
God, we have this internal aspect, the renewing of our mind, this, 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 this change, this shift where our mind is no longer seeking to exalt self but exalt God. We do that in a lot of ways. I just want to provide just a few. We do it with our thoughts, with what we think. Oh, what do you think about? Like, what captures your thoughts? Like, what do you dwell on in your mind? And what, what's the focus of your thoughts? And I, I don't want to make it sound like we've got to be sitting around thinking, God, 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 God. Oh, I thought about my son. That's not worse. No. That's, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we take our thoughts and we firm our thoughts. We land our thoughts. We stick our thoughts on the foundation of the glory of God. And that rather than seeking revenge and thinking about and plotting about the ways that I can hurt somebody because they've hurt me, I turn that and I think, God, how can I glorify you in this situation? Help me. I plead with him. I think on him. It's about bringing God into the thought. Well, what do you love? Like, what do you cherish? What, do you, what, do you, what, what, what is most important to you? What do you adore the most? What do you trust? What do you place your faith in? Do you believe more in your own efforts and in your own power to save yourself, to make yourself happy, to find yourself your own contentment? Or do you trust God? The the faith is an interesting one. They all work themselves out eventually. But faith is so intrinsically tied to our outward action that it's kind of a dual focus. Yet we have to believe within us But that belief will immediately be shown outside of us. It directly affects our actions. When we believe God and we express our faith in him, it proves God to people around us as faithful. What are you thankful for? We express worship in gratitude. We express worship in our desires, the things that we long for. The, 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 the psalmist that writes, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. When, when God is your desire, when he is your, your, your greatest longing, he will not withhold himself from you. He's going to give you the desires of your heart. Well, oftentimes we want to think about the desires of our heart and God's going to give us those. But the first part of that teaching is that we find we find that when we find our delight in the Lord. We worship him internally when we desire him most, when we express gratitude towards him, when we express our faith in him, when we think on him, and when we love him. And we express our worship with him externally when we walk in obedience. He, he calls it out. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you might be, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God so that we might walk in his will, so that we might live in his will, so that we might do God's will. We might follow his commands, that we might that not, not follow his commands simply for the sake of saying that I follow his commands. Follow his commands that, that he might be glorified in our life. When we break his commands, it's as if we're saying that that he doesn't know what we need as much. When we live according to our own design, when we determine to go our own way. But when we walk in obedience as an expression of faith, 
we demonstrate him as worthy of our worship. And when the, when, when, when the trials come and when the difficulties come, our obedience, our continued obedience, proves him to the world around us. We worship him externally with our praise. The, the Psalms are full of these. The, the Psalms are all, uh, all over. It's calling us to praise him, to bless his holy name. We, we met as a prayer team last night, and, and, and the Psalm that we worked through was, bless your holy name. Like, you are worthy of this. And so we say this, we speak it. But our worship isn't simply expressed in our praise of him. Our, 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 our worship of him is expressed in our speech. The book that I mentioned that, that Bob Coughlin wrote, he, he, he writes this, Every time we open our mouths, we're speaking words of worship. As Jesus told the Pharisees, out of the abundance of the heart, of the, heart the mouth speaks. Every word we speak, we're worshiping something. To join God in his mission, we speak truths about God. We speak truths about ourselves. We speak truths about the gospel. We don't do this alone. The thing is, we're not by ourselves in this. The fact is that at some point, this, this begins to spread beyond us, that we're no longer individuals in it. In fact, the rest of uh, Romans chapter 12 into the end of Romans through chapter 15, Paul is describing how this affects our lives together. And he calls us to worship in our service towards one another, towards the ways that we live one another. In fact, he comes to chapter 15, verse 5 through 6. He's kind of summarizing this, and he's summing it up, and he's tying up the loose ends. And he writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, that we can live at peace with one another, so we can have real intimate relationship together. In accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, so that we can be united and, and with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he put us together? That we might together worship him. So that we might together be a people who are giving ourselves up as a living sacrifice. That he might be glorified. Christians, we serve in the mission by uniting together in the gospel for the purpose of acceptable Worship, gathering together, serving one another, using our gifts and abilities on one another's behalf, preaching the gospel to one another. This grace is tangibly alive in, in, in this body of believers. I told the first church, if you, or the first service, if you came to this church looking for what you could just consume, well, we don't have a lot of big programs, fancy, fancy stuff to just keep you consuming. But we do have a lot to offer. Because in this room are people who are full of the grace and the goodness of God. Who if they will give their lives in a sacrificial, uh, as, as a sacrificial uh, living sacrifice to God for the good of his people, God will be glorified and we will be blessed. And we worship God externally by our faithful Witness. Continue on down in Romans chapter 15, just a, a verse or so. And he, he writes in, in verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. What he's saying is that Christ came and made himself a, a, a servant to the Jews, to God's chosen people in the world, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, to those who God had been promising salvation all along, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. 
Jesus came and made himself a servant so that his chosen people could worship and know him in truth. And so that those who were not yet his people would also be able to worship. He came preaching the gospel. He sent us to preach the gospel. His mission would extend and, be, and advance beyond his people so that together we would express our worship by proclaiming the gospel that others could turn and worship. You see, we worship God. We join God in his mission by, by directing our whole life for the purpose of worship, that he might be glorified in all things. And so I come to this moment and we just need to get real. I need to ask a question. <laughs> Whose mission am I on? Who am I worshiping in my life? Why do I do the things that I do? To exalt myself or to glorify and worship God? John Calvin, I shared this quote with you last week, I think is a great way to finish our service. He says, we should consider it the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshipers of God. To translate that into the, the, the language of our sermon today, it should be the mission of our life to join God in his mission and worship him. There's no greater purpose for our existence and there is no other place that we are going to find the things that our hearts long for. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to enable us to worship you, to enable us to, to stand upright and offer you acceptable worship. We are blessed. Spirit, I would ask that you would just come and do the work that you have promised that you would do to point us to Jesus, to show us the truth, to lead us into truth and convict us as necessary. That our idols would be displaced and our hearts would be drawn to worship you more fully. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.